swivel. I love roller coasters. It's exhilaration for the uncoordinated. You might trip over air in real life, but on an amusement park ride, you strap in, have all the fun you want, and you probably won't fall over. I've never been afraid of hopping on a crazy ride, and the scarier the better, but there's always a moment when I'm strapped in and the ride's about to take off when I realize that there's no stopping now. I'm in it to the end, and I have no one to blame but myself for whatever's about to happen. A roller coaster ride is a great analogy for starting a business. Once you commit, you're on the ride for however long it takes, with no guarantee of how it's going to end. Some founders ride the roller coaster once, and then when the ride is finished, no matter the result, they move on to other things. But some finish one ride and get straight back on the roller coaster again. Swivel Media, I'm Scotty Allen, and this is Starting Line, where we talk to established and emerging founders, and we start from the beginning. My guest for this episode is currently on his third ride of the roller coaster. I'm Steve Grace. I'm CEO of The Nudge Group. Steve is undoubtedly a successful roller coaster rider. He's strapped in for... Okay, that analogy is getting old. He's been through the founding or co-founding and then selling process twice before doing what he does now. The Nudge Group is essentially a business that uses the revenue from recruitment to help startups and scale-ups of all sizes scale. And we do that through helping them with their employee branding, with getting their message out there through our media arms, with introducing them to venture capital or private equity. We also invest from an angel point of view. But that what the actual company does in its bulk, and those are all sort of add-on services, is we help companies scale and scale quickly. So usually this happens after some sort of round of funding. It can be seed round where someone's going from two to 10, and that's one of the most interesting times, or it can be when you're... Series A and going from 20 to 50 or as much as some as Series E where we're helping companies launch into six different countries at the same time. So it covers quite a broad range, but it's really everyone that's on that venture journey. We enable and help them scale effectively um, and efficiently as possible all over the world. To understand the story of the Nudge Group, we need to understand Steve's story, which includes an influential father, two other businesses and some pretty crazy ideas along the way. I grew up in England and I had a father who was a Harley Street dentist. If anyone knows anything about dentistry in the UK, Harley Street is the epitome of dentistry. Um, And my family had been Harley Street dentists forever and a day, going back to the time where people wore hats. He was doing very well, had his own practice, his own business and so forth. He had three children, a very expensive private school of which I'm a product. And he found out that he had a problem with his neck bone. I don't know if you know much about anatomy, but neck bones are, there's a sort of strip and then there's a number of sort of discs that go across that. And there's usually three. Well, he didn't have those three discs. He just had a completely solid bone. It was an abnormal thing that happened when he was born. And he hadn't realized until he was probably mid-30s. 
was getting a lot of pain, and that pain was driven by him constantly being bent over. So the surgeon said to him, you've got two choices. You can quit dentistry or you can be in a wheelchair by the time you're 45. So obvious choice, quit dentistry. Had no idea what to do. Trained to be a dentist his whole life. Family trained to be a dentist. You know, it's, it's kind of the, the, the birthright almost. He really didn't know what he was going to do. And mortgage, all sorts of debt. So my father, who is a academic, he's a number of PhDs. He's very studious. He's not what you would call zany or crazy or, or, or a typical founder in any way. Did probably one of the most amazing things, and I remember this quite well because I was probably about 12, 13 years age, and it had a profound effect on me. He, he started a whole bunch of different businesses, but the one that had the most success was a business called Moving Music. And my father was one of the first people to import rap music from the States to the UK. And trust me, my father, I don't think, ever listened to rap music. I don't think he would even be able to really name you an artist these days. He's in his 80s now. But um, he started importing CDs of, of rap music and had huge success, which is just so ironic. Um, unfortunately for him, his business partner, who was a mate from college, ended up disappearing with all the money. And he again left in this scenario, this terrible scenario of debt. And he then started to write books. It was when computer programming was around and he learned, taught himself to computer program. He ended up writing eight books on computer programming and became a well-published author. He also started a training business. He also went into financial planning. And all of this sort of eventually led him back to the job that he retired in, which brought everything together. And he became editor of the British Dental Journal in London and did that for the last 15 years of his life. In 2021, we know that working life is probably going to involve a number of iterations. But when Steve's father had to make the decision to leave dentistry, this was not common thinking. And that makes his resilience and willingness to take risks especially noteworthy. It also helps us understand why this had such a significant impact on Steve and his own ideas for the future. What that taught me as a child growing up was that you can really do anything and you have control of your destiny, no matter what it throws at you. You don't think of it like that as a child. And at the same time, he made me read positivity books, if you like, positive thinking books from a very young age. How to Win Friends and Influence People was one of the first books I probably read that wasn't a school book, bizarrely. But that, that obviously had an effect on me. So if you then fast forward many, many years, I went and played some sport pretty badly and then I ended up falling into the, the industry of recruitment like most people do by walking into a recruitment agency looking for a job and then offering me one. I moved to Australia and I always knew I was going to start my own business. It was just a matter of when. And ultimately, Australia was a really easy decision. I came here on a work visa as soon as I got my permanent residency and I was allowed to, I quit my job and I started my own business. So I think it wasn't that I ever wanted to start a recruitment business. It was that I'd seen what my father had done in being able to take control of his life and keep our standard of living that we had all the way through. And I thought, well, that's far more appealing to me than being told what to do or working for someone else. And I've also had a fundamental problem with authority most of my life. So I think I think that combined with my dyslexia, I was a candidate for entrepreneurship from day one. You know, I've got, I've got all, the, all the bits and bobs wrong with me that mean if you don't work for yourself, you're kind of stuffed. Let's face it. If you can work out early on that you're a terrible employee, it makes life much easier for everyone. After all, Steve Jobs said, it's more fun to be a pirate than to join the Navy, or some version of that quote, depending on who's telling the story. So I started an agency called Fingerprint. It took me ages to come up with a name. I've come up with a few names. I hate coming up with names. Um, the name, the idea of the name was that there was very little emphasis on candidates back then in recruitment. So we're talking, you know, 2003. And I wanted to say that I was going to treat candidates different. And the tagline was fingerprint. We treat every candidate and every client 
individually like a fingerprint. And, and that was the tagline that we came up. And that was an IT recruitment agency, but it was also the, the sort of dawn of digital, when digital was first becoming a digital. So taking advantage of that by trying to position ourselves as a digital specialist, even though we really didn't know what we were doing. Um, and I did that with a, my first business partner who was, you know, maybe 10, 15 years older than me. And that was there was a lesson to be learned in that, in that if you do start a business with people of a different age, can cause problems because you want very different things from that business as you have success. And that's a, another whole story. Um, but we had that for seven years and it was awesome. I mean, we didn't make a lot of money because we spent a lot of money. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're young, the business was very successful. So we did make a lot of money, but because we were young, we would spend it on our staff. We had outrageous offices. We had physical competitions. We had ridiculous boat trips. We had crazy incentives. And it taught me a lot about how to run a business. If we hadn't have been so successful, we could have easily gone broke. But it, it also taught me a lot about how to enjoy and, and really it, it was probably the most mistakes I've ever made in my life in a shortest period of time. But it was so much fun. And I'm still in contact. And some of the people who work for me now in, in my current company worked for me back then as well. It was just an absolute ball. And we did end up selling that business, not because we tried to, but because we, we were approached. And being young, you know, dollars flash before your eyes. You tend to uh, easily distract it. And, and we did end up selling that business. <laughs> when it gets reported in the media, the sale of a business is usually boiled down to a headline with a big figure in it. But those reports distill years into a couple of paragraphs at best and hardly begin to tell the real story. For starters, that big figure is rarely, if ever, a cash total that the sellers walk away with. It's a number that represents a myriad of moving parts, and what sits behind that is a lot of contractual ifs, ands, or buts in well, just a lot of words that determine how much of the deal will actually happen. As it turns out, there was a clause in the deal that Steve and his partner accepted that would turn out to be a bit of a gotcha. In the sale, we, we got really screwed. And there was a couple of reasons. Some were out of our control, some were not. I really trusted our lawyers, who were a big firm, and charged us a ridiculous amount of money. And the deal that they negotiated for us, I didn't educate myself enough I just trusted and signed, basically, you know, as you do when you're young. And we sat there and had lots of meetings that they chose us lots of money for and gave us lots of coffee in. But I really didn't educate myself on a lot of the clauses that really mattered. And unfortunately for us, we negotiated a really good deal. It was a really great multiple. But it was very much um, contingent on a two to three year earnout period with, with the bulk of the money coming at the end of that earnout period, which is why we managed to get a high multiple. Now, unfortunately, a small little thing called the GFC hit during that period, which all but wiped out the business. We went from 300 live recruitment jobs to three in, in 10 days, um, and we had a staff of 30. And it was awful because I had to make people redundant because I was told to, because it was no longer my business. Uh, and that was one of the most terrific things I've ever done, who, who through no fault of their own were losing their jobs. And the deal that our wonderful lawyers had negotiated was we didn't just have a multiple on how much profit we made. If we made a loss, there was a multiple on the loss, which meant that technically I could potentially end up owing the money, which if you sell a business, that's like your worst nightmare. Um, and, and, I and you know, with the lawyer that I then engaged, who has now become one of my closest friends and is my lawyer and has been my lawyer ever since, he helped get us out of that deal, which was completely unreasonable, unheard of, doesn't happen, should have never happened. And we ended up you know, I got a tiny bit of money out of it, which, which, which was good. You know, I didn't end up paying money, but it was a horrific experience. Um, it was a very difficult negotiation getting out of it. 
And even though the, the market recovered towards the end of the year, they destroyed the business, the, the people had gone, they killed the brand. I learned so much during that period, and it's great to be able to think back of it on it. Now, at the time, not happy Jan is probably an understatement, but it was, I, I learned more about deals and legals and selling and understanding the big bad world and understanding that it's not, the gravy train doesn't go forever. And all those awful lessons, all in a very short period of time at quite a quite a young age. So Grateful for it now, not grateful for it at the time. <laughs> to be fair, who hasn't signed something without reading the fine print, right? I mean, usually it's like a streaming service sign-up or insurance or mortgage document. Okay, it can happen to anybody. So lessons learned, and with some profit behind him, Steve took time to work out his next move. He was contractually barred from working in recruitment for a period of time, but not recruiting for recruiters, which is apparently a whole different thing. And so he tried that briefly and hated it. And then the opportunity came to buy into a relatively new business, which would ultimately lead to experiencing bigger success and learning even bigger life lessons. Ashdown had recently started and it was being run by a very close friend of mine. And he... He is a personality type that's very analytical. He's perhaps not as strong with people as he could be, um, can be quite brash. You know, it's just a different personality. He was very, very strong around analytical, financial, that kind of thinking. And he was struggling to keep staff because of the because of the way he was. Right? He wasn't that charismatic founder that sometimes people like, particularly in recruitment where you've got a lot of salespeople and young people. So I bought half of that business and we set about growing it. And it was in a very similar space. And I'd gone through my non-compete by then. And we grew that from one to, to 40 million. And that was a massive job. And it was one of the most fun times I've had until probably the last couple of years. I think it's really good to have two founders who are quite different because you bring different things to the business. And, you know, I was very much sales and management and people, and he was analytics and back end and operations and compliance. And that's great because you have strengths. But as you have more success, you reach a point where generally, you think like this, and then it starts to get like this, and the more success, the more you have very different views on which way you should go. We talked in a previous episode about the value of co-founders and the ways in which finding a co-founder can be the making of a business, and this had been true for Ashjohn. But co-founder relationships are like all relationships. They have ups and downs and sometimes a finite lifespan. As Steve and his business partner moved apart, it became clear that a change was needed, but as they say, breaking up is hard to do. I was going to leave at one point and we talked about it and it was all very amicable. And then all at the last minute we decided, no, I'll stay and we'll build it to sell and we'll both sell and we'll make a fortune and it'll be hooray. Um, unfortunately, those two years didn't work out. Our relationship really broke down horrifically. Unfortunately, we don't talk anymore, which is very sad because we were best men at each other's weddings and you know all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it happens, friends and business. And I ended up selling my share of my business to him. It was a really hostile scenario. It was horrific for the staff to see mum and dad fighting, which is essentially what it was. And I left that business and I did okay out of that. Like, that was financially, that was pretty good. But it, it was really sad because I put so much of my life into that and to have to leave in that way. It broke my heart to some degree, and it, it's actually kind of like, and I only can think about this now in reflection, it was like a divorce because it wasn't just that I put so much effort into that business and it had been so successful and I loved all the staff. 
It was also the fact that this was someone who'd been friends with for 25 years who I'd seen every day. So, you know, as much as it's not a, a, a marriage, it's a marriage of sorts. And to suddenly not have that person in your life and to have disagreements and broken up, so to speak, it was, it really affected me massively mentally. It took me a long time. Like I was, I was not in a good place. So I said that there were three businesses total at the start, which means that we're about to get to the nudge group, but we can't skip over one of the ideas that Steve nearly pursued because it's, oh, I'll let him explain. I had some crazy ideas. I think my best idea was, and I actually got quite close to doing this. I was going to run holiday tours for wealthy Chinese people to come over stay at the casino in the Gold Coast, have some sort of selective or elective surgery, maybe plastic surgery, and gamble, and buy property, and then go home. And I was getting a cut on everything. I was getting a cut on the gambling losses. I was getting cut on the property sales. I was getting cut on the plastics. It was genius, right? And then I suddenly sort of went, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never even been to China. What are you thinking? Um, And thank God, right, because it wasn't long after COVID hit. (laughs) But that was just one of them. It was. And then I was into the the cryogen stuff. I was going to freeze everybody, right? And I was going to regenerate their cells. I wanted to do something in medical or health or fitness. I've always I've always placed a lot of emphasis on exercise and fitness um, and health. It's very important to me. So I wanted to do something in that space because I wanted to re-energize myself because I had no interest in recruitment. So and there was a numerous other ones which I won't even go into. It's just ridiculous ideas. I had to include the combination plastic surgery, gambling, and property junket idea because, well, I want to make a movie of it. And I I mean, once you start freezing everyone and regenerating cells, I'm pretty sure that's how supervillains are made, right? Thankfully, this was not a movie, and Steve processed his experiences instead. And there was a lot to process because alongside the end of his business relationship, he'd experienced a very personal loss as well. My mother also died at the same time, so it was a horrific time. I had a good eight months off then, and which was when we came up with the idea that we're doing now. But there was a lot of, um, and I'm now on reflection, kind of grieving almost of, of the loss of my mother, but also the loss of a business partner and the loss of the business. But I learned a lot on how to scale a business. I learned how I learned a lot from him around how to run a business effectively, compliance, financial, all that kind of stuff. So. I grew up really as a, as a businessman in that role. I think that's probably the best way I can describe that. But And it was a great business. It's still in operation. It's changed a little now. He's taken it in a completely different direction, which was the whole reason we sort of ended up splitting up. But it was it was a very positive experience right up until the end. And like I said, I think I left it two years too long, unfortunately. I think, it's, I think I'm through that now. I don't think I was through that when I started Nudge. I think there was an element of anger around the whole thing. There was... Though I had a lot of, and I probably didn't realise at the time, I had a lot of anger in me around that during the negotiating, getting out of it. I think I behaved abysmally to some degree. Don't get me wrong, so did he. But it, it you know, it's you see it in divorces, right? People that have had this harmonious relationship suddenly do the most horrific things to each other. So it took a while. I think it took it took a while, but not working for eight months. To some to some degree, the loss of mother helped distract me, um, but nothing. It took me a long time to decide whether I was going to do the business that I do. So when I left that, I was sure I wasn't going to do anything in recruitment. I was done. That was it. I was out. I hated the industry. Hated everyone. I realised that, and I was reading a lot of books at the time, and all these books, you know, were talking about 
you build this expertise, you just need to find a way to apply it in something you like. So I was just thinking, okay, I need to apply recruitment because that's what I've done for 20 odd years and I'm good at it and I've had success at it and I've got a lot to offer the world in terms of that. How can I apply that to something I like? During the pandemic, we have overused a lot of words and phrases like unprecedented and pivot and it's not my fault, I'm just the prime minister. But I'm going to apply pivot here because I think what Steve did at this point is a much better example of a true pivot than some of the things that we've held up during COVID. He took what he knew and what he'd been doing and then looked at it from a different angle to find a new opportunity. And I love startups. I hadn't really thought about it that clearly, but I love startups because I'd done startups because of what happened to me with my father and all this kind of stuff. So I looked at that sector and there was no recruiters for startups. And I knew we'd done recruitment in my businesses for startups and it'd been terrible. And I knew most recruiters had a really bad relationship with startups. And I thought, well, that's crazy because they need more help than anyone. Most founders have no idea about hiring people and how to go about that. And people in general, their tech or their marketing usually sometimes sales. So I set aside trying to work out what the problems were. I knew what the problems were from my side, from a recruitment side. I went and spoke to some other recruiters and there was a few other things that annoyed other recruiters about working with startups. And I knew quite a few startup founders. So I went and sat and talked to them and said, what do you hate about recruiters? Gosh, the list was a lot longer than I had initially anticipated. And I took those two lists and came up with ways to solve each of those different problems and try and create them into a winning situation. And that was the blueprint for Nudge. I asked Steve if he was familiar with the Osterwalder Value Proposition Canvas. And while he said he wasn't, what he did here is a perfect illustration of that model. We'll put a link in the show notes because it's a great template for mapping out exactly what Steve identified here, which was finding the pain points of his prospective customers, understanding the gains they wanted to make, and then mapping his solution to relieve their pain points and deliver their gains. You can apply it to any product or services model, and it's a great way to make sure that you're selling something that you know people want rather than just think they should buy. Now, Steve mentioned earlier he hates coming up with business names, but this one presented itself. The Nudge name came about because at that time, and it's still very much the case now, advertising has become futile, headhunting is the only way, approaching people, pulling them out. And I, there's not a lot of words that haven't been taken. You know, most companies are made up words now, but I wanted to use a real word. So I came up with the name Nudge because I felt like we were always giving people a nudge to get them to move from one place to the other. And it wasn't taken. And as far as I was concerned, that was it. It was done. I'm taking it. I can do loads with the marketing around this. The nudge theory, the nudge effect was all a little bit in the press at that time as well. So I just, I just grabbed it. And that's where the name came from. And we started from there. And that was two and a half years ago now. Whether the points are fair or not, I think we all know what we hate about recruiters. So instead, I asked Steve what recruiters hate about startups. The answer should be very helpful to any founder who's looking at building their own team. So startups typically have no money, as we all know, or, or have limited money and have you know X amount of months left in their runway. So they always wanted lower rates. Fair enough. Okay, makes sense. So you start off on a lower rate with the view that you'll get higher rates down the track. So the first thing was, well, I'm going to get paid less. So that's annoying. The second thing was they have no idea what they want. And this is very true. And most of the startups we work with now, the role evolves during the process. Right? So it takes a lot longer to do that because it's almost the process of recruitment defines the role rather than Macquarie Bank coming to you going, I want 10 people, this is exactly what I want, go find it. So the process took longer. So they were getting paid less and the process took longer. And then the last part was that because recruiters don't understand startups and they don't understand that you need different people at seed or at series A or series B or series C, it's completely different personality types. 
Because there's no understanding of that, they had a lot of dropouts. And the way that recruitment works is you guarantee someone for three or six months. If they leave within that period of time, you replace them for free. So recruiters are going, okay, so I'm getting paid less. It's going to take me longer, and I'm probably going to have to replace double the amount of people for free. Why am I doing this? Couple that with the fact that a lot of recruiters have relatively sizable egos, as do founders. It was a match made in hell, essentially. And, and it, it, was, it was a lack of understanding on both sides. Um, but mainly, they just couldn't fill the roles because recruiters weren't educated enough and still aren't in a lot of organizations as to what startups need. And the founders don't have a clue either. So it's the blind leading the blind. One of the ways that Steve developed the Nudge Group's value proposition was by identifying a misunderstanding on both the part of the founders and the recruiters of the type of candidates that they should be targeting. They didn't understand the people that they would just flick resumes to them. They'd have them up at five jobs, the, the, the variety of things. But I think fundamentally what they really hated about recruiters is they didn't understand what they wanted. So we touched on this a minute ago. If you are hiring a marketing manager and you are a seed company, or if you are hiring a marketing manager as a series A, or if you're hiring a marketing manager as a series D, or if you're hiring a marketing manager going into an IPO, they're completely different candidates. And what recruiters were doing was they were finding a marketing manager for their role at Combank, and then they were flicking it out to three startups. Complete madness, like just lunacy. So we spend huge amounts of time educating our consultants on the different kinds of personalities, how to question, and teaching the founders as well how to interviews and use situational questioning to understand whether that person is going to fit the penknife model, which is the early stage where they can do multiple things, or whether they're in that series D where they're actually saying, okay, we've got product team, now we need to have specialists in those product teams to achieve specific things. You know, it's just understanding where they are and understanding what kind of person. And I think the biggest mistake most startup founders make is they want to hire someone from the, the Canva or the safety culture or the high profile scale up because they think that they're amazing because they work in this amazing company. And yet that company is at such a different phase. They're not going to work in your 10 person startups, the wrong person. I asked Steve to sum up the Nudge Group elevator pitch. So the elevator pitch is simple. We will talk to any founder at any stage. We will find out what they're trying to achieve. It could be that they need funding. It could be that they need to understand how quickly they can scale. It could be they want to launch into another country. It could be they're designing their ESOP and how should that look. It could be that they want to create an employer branding exercise. They want to get their product out in front of people. They don't understand the consumer model. It, it doesn't matter what it is. We're not experts in everything. But what we have done is we've built ecosystems in every country that we operate of people who are experts in those things specifically for startups. We will then introduce those startups to angel investors, founders, marketing people, branding people, accountants, lawyers, whoever it is, who then help them at a reasonable cost and are not going to rip them off and understand that space very well. In doing that, that will enable them to grow. When they grow, they will come back and use us to hire, hopefully. And of course, they always do. So that's the value prop. The value prop is that we're going to help you grow your business. And hopefully you are then going to come back and give back to us in terms of fees, which has enabled us to go and help another founder grow their business, who's then going to use that money to recruit through us to help us do another business and another business. Another element that sets the Nudge Group apart is their approach to content marketing and the ways they utilize it to build collateral for their clients. The one thing I have learned at Nudge that I never really understood in any of my businesses because we didn't really do it is the power of content marketing. Blown me away, completely blown me away. My gosh, why did we ever make a cold call in our lives? Ridiculous. 
And I think learning about content marketing and marketing and branding has been really fascinating for me. And, and I had no idea of the power of it. But more importantly, I, the power of it in this sector, I think, is even more amplified. We have a TV show called Give It a Nudge. What a great name. I told you the Nudge Group was going to come up with some good marketing where we, we do a really high-quality television show. And the reason we do that is it's a platform to help founders articulate their story. The most important thing when you're hiring as a founder, it doesn't matter whether you're on your own starting out or whether you're at Series D, is that you articulate your story to potential employees. They need to know where you came from, what made you start it, where you're at and where you're going, and that continuously changes. So by doing that in, an, in a television studio with me talking to them in a very conversational, relaxed style, that enables them sometimes to realise it themselves because they don't usually have the time to sit down and think about it. And then they get all that content to help grow their business. And then it also helps us when we're hiring. So we have that. We have another um, website called Balance the Grind where we can profile them and interview them, which is quite separate to the Nudge Group. Again, it's another profile raiser, helps raise their brand from an employee branding perspective, or even if they're going to get funding, all these kinds of mediums help. I asked Steve how his leadership style has evolved over the course of running three different businesses. I'm much I'm much harsher on some things and softer on other things. Again, it's almost like a reverse. Whereas we businesses before were take, 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 and then we'll give you something. But I was very liberal and probably not structured enough. I think people really need to understand what you're trying to achieve as a business, how they contribute it, what's expected of them, what's not allowed, what is allowed. But you also have to have an environment that is incredibly supportive. I mean, we have a very relaxed working policy. We have we have office spaces. You don't have to come in. We don't have office hours. I don't mind when you work. You know, we're a global business. You want to work between 7 and 1 in the morning, go for your life. You know, we don't monitor that. I don't monitor people's hours. It's an outcome-driven environment as opposed to a timekeeping environment. All the normal modern things that I think most successful businesses do. But I think I'm probably a lot harsher and more structured than I ever was. You know, I think a lot of people would seem to become a better leader. You need to become more liberal and less structured to, because everyone will like you more. I've probably gone the other way and I care less about them liking what I'm doing, but more about how it's going to impact the business. I give everybody in the business equity. I want everyone in the business to have equity. They have to earn that. It comes, you know, to an ESOP plan that we all understand as well. And the reason I want that is because I want people to really feel part of it. We're very open around the finances. It's just the opposite of a traditional, it's opposite of everything I did. And finally, I asked Steve for one piece of advice for emerging founders. I think you've got to ask yourself why. Um, and if you're starting a business because you want to start a business, it's probably not the right reason. I think you, you should start a business when it becomes so obvious or so annoying that there's something that needs to be changed and you're the one that needs to change it. That's that you, you need to have a real reason. You can want to start a business, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But you need to have a reason as to what that business is going to be. You can't just say, I'm going to start a business, for example, in importing Chinese tourists to go and gamble and then just because you think it's a good idea. It's not a good idea. It's a terrible idea. But if you see a problem or you see an opportunity that is so obvious to you, that's a great reason to start a business. You have to have the reason. A huge thanks to Steve Grace for being my guest for this episode. He has a wealth of knowledge, and now that we've told his founder story, we'll have to have him back as a subject matter expert and come back to a number of the great topics that we talked about that we didn't have time to include this time around. You can find out more about The Nudge Group at thenudgegroup.com. You can watch the Give It a Nudge show on YouTube or find the podcast version wherever you listen to Starting Line. 
and check out balancethegrind.co for more great founder and startup content. Starting Line is a production of Swivel Media. It's produced by Phoebe Zukowski-Wallace and me, Scotty Allen. Our consulting producer is Amanda Reedy. This episode was mixed by Kyle McLevy and me. Original music by Ash Geneve. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people find our show. To find out more about Swivel, our services, and other shows, visit swivelmedia.com, that's swivel with an O, or find us on social media, and we'll see you there. Swivel.